recap for a minute. What did we learn last week? And there was a wide gamut. So what stuck out for you? What did we learn last week? Read the Bible. I want to put it on the board because it's a solid truth. I didn't know how to use the app. <laughs> vultures are not eagles. That's right. Vultures are, vultures are not eagles. Uh, a first grader can make that distinction. Our Bible seems to struggle. <laughs> okay. Yep. Yep. What else? Ah, perfect. What were our, there were four different things that we want to look in for context. What are they? Context of? The verse, the ah. chapter. Yes. The book. Verse, and I'm, I'll put, um, I didn't do this last week, but I'll put them together. Verse is one, chapter, book is another. How, how a certain thing is talked about within a book of the Bible, um, or within like the, the, the chapter, I use that as kind of a shorthand distinction, but we decided that that's not necessarily a great distinction, right? Because those chapter headings were inserted. It wasn't part of the original biblical structure. Okay, So like, yeah, how does how the book talk about this thing? We have a wider perspective. Verse, book, what else? Author. Uh, so yeah, that, we'll put that in the, as part of the social context. Culture, social. Yeah. yeah, we care who wrote it. We care what was happening around it, the environment that they were walking in when they were writing it, those types of things. Good. Anybody remember the last one? This is one we're going to get to today. Yeah, God's story. And so, I mean, you could, most of the time, when we're talking about a context of God's story, we're talking about the Old Testament. I don't, actually, I don't, I don't like to make that level of distinction, because I think it, when we say Old and New Testament, it cuts off a portion of God's story from us a little bit, as if it's not relevant to us. And again, most of these guys are writing in the context coming from there. That's their scripture, Yes. So when they're making references, they're pointing back to part of God's story that those people have gone through. And without that background, we sometimes let that go askew. Okay? We sometimes miss what they're talking about or what they're referencing because we're unfamiliar with that part of God's story. And I told you there are more references in the, in the book of Revelation to the Old Testament than there are verses. Okay? We're going to screw up Revelation if we don't know our Old Testament. We're going to run into some circumstances in Matthew 10 today where we run that same risk. Um, why do we care? Why, do we, why are we studying the end times? What does it matter? Right, so people, people think they, they're trying to predict when the end of times is going to be, and the Bible says that no one knows the day or the hour, right? So that's suspicious to us. Yes? I agree. I agree. Why else? Is it just God wants us to know or not know? We caution you that Strongly, our understanding of how the world will end, when the world will end, to the extent that we have any idea to know what that is, um, and what that looks like, is primarily to inform what we know, believe, and do today. All right, God has no—he has no reason to show off with things that He knows. Creator of the universe, okay, came, sent Jesus to die to save everybody. Right, like He has a very good resume. It doesn't do much for him to have to say, oh, by the way, I know what's going to happen. The Bible's full of prophecy already. Like we have messages from God. Some of it speaks to the future. Some of it is just messages from God that says, here's how things are today. Okay? We, we should read our understanding of what's going to happen at the, end, at the end of times to influence how we live our day-to-day lives. Okay? That, is, that is an impact that if we're not walking away from, then I think we're probably missing what God is trying to communicate in those verses. 
How so? I agree. Nobody, nobody knows the time or the hour, so get to get Yeah, that was the context in which he said that, right? Yeah. He said, be ready. Be ready. Because you don't know, right? And so, and... None of us know. Whether, right. Whether he's coming in two minutes, Philip, or if we're going in right. two minutes, right? Right. So I think that this gives us be about my business. Yeah. Yeah, it, I'll handle it. I know I've got it, but still be about my business. And it's interesting to think that the amount of effort that he takes. Uh, this this happens um, in that that verse from um, for, what was it first or second Peter that we were looking at last week. Second Peter, um, he's talking about the end of the world. I mean, verses and verses about the end of the world, and then says, "So then, this is how we live today." And in, in Matthew twenty four, he's talking about all these things that have these end times stuff around it, and he says, "But no one knows the day and hour, so be ready." that informs how we live our day-to-day life. That's the right perspective which we need to kind of digest um, all these things that we're talking about. Okay, uh, we also said we've got to be careful. This is something that people are easily caught up in. Um, Christians like to argue about this. We don't necessarily want to argue about this, but we do want to pursue it passionately because we want to understand God's Word correctly. Um, we are. Uh, we need to be careful, especially with end time stuff, um, because the creepers seem to come out when, when the end times is coming around. Okay? It is when they can have the most influence because we want to know, because we're afraid, or we want to be prepared, or we want to see, we think that God's marketing plan of salvation is not good enough, and so that we want to add some things to it to try to compel people to come into the kingdom. Okay? Yeah, we don't do that. That's true for end time stuff. That's true for everything. We don't add to try to make God's story a little bit different than what he presented so that people will come to the kingdom because then they're coming falsely. You accept Jesus for who he is, how he is, what he's done, and the kingdom that he's offering, or you don't. Okay, we, we complicate it with, with fluffy things that we want to try to convince them. Like, if I could scare the pants off you, maybe you'll come and love Jesus. But, like, those two things are not compatible. Okay? All right, good. So, last week, we were talking about context. We said what is happening directly on verses and chapters. Um, we talked about what is happening in the culture. That was the example um, we said uh, when, when they're... Screaming out, peace and security, pox et securitas, right? And that sits interestingly in, in a Roman society where it's Rome that brings peace. And basically Paul is referencing, if, if that's the peace that you, if that's who you're relying on to bring peace and security, uh, you have a serious, serious problem because those things are, come from God. Um, we got to, um, we talked about the, the Philippians 4.13 verse, and then we need to talk about what is happening in God's story. And before I go any further, I'm going to write, um, just because I'm going to forget this. That is, that is Shane Wood. I'll say this up, up front. Um, if any of you guys are familiar with him, um, every, most of the stuff that you're going to hear from me, he probably has done better. Um, he is an excellent resource for Revelation stuff, for end time stuff. Um, he does a very good Matthew study. And so uh, I stole a lot of his examples because, frankly, they're better than mine. So um, just, I just want to give that to you as a reference. If there's something um, you kind of want to dig into this stuff further, uh, if you go to shanejwood.com, uh, he's got, he's got um, a lot of his classes. He's a, a professor at Ozark Christian College in Missouri and is, and is very good. So I just want to say that before we go any further, uh, and then when, if you listen to that, you'll say, oh yeah, Ben gave that example. Yeah, that came, it was the other way around. He's not listening to me. Uh, I'm listening to him. Okay, let's talk about context. So we want to talk about the context of God's story. And if we make a mistake in our Bible reading, I would say this is probably the big source of it. Is, is the gospel writers are saying things that otherwise have some context as, as a part of, previous part of God's story, and we simply miss it, and then try to place it somewhere else, or try to stick it somewhere because we don't understand it. 
And uh, to the extent that we do that, we cause ourselves some serious problems. Because one, it disconnects the continuity through God's grand narrative. I want us to be able to see this broad story that God is telling. Our reality, although God is communicating with us differently than perhaps He has done with the people in the Old Testament, we're still a part of that one long story. The interactions that Jesus is having with the Pharisees and with the religious leaders, they're reacting that way because of things that they believe coming from previous parts of God's story. And Jesus is responding to them with truths that came from previous parts of His story. Okay? These are not, it's not an unfamiliar playing field that they're on, but to the extent that we don't know those things, we need to get them. Otherwise, we don't understand kind of the context of which these guys are talking. Um, so let's, let's first look at uh, John 8.58. 8, so let's just pull up John 8. All right, uh, we're going to skip the, uh, the woman caught in adultery story because uh, that's not necessarily relevant to what we're talking about. But let's, um, let's start in at John 8.12. And what I want you to watch out for is, is the reaction, the reaction of the people interacting with Jesus. Okay, here we go. Uh, 8.12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. What are they accusing him of? Yeah, so you're bearing testimony about yourself. It's not true, because how many witnesses do you need? Yeah, yeah, right? That's, it's, we were talking a little about that last week. That's where that's, it's, an, it's an Old Testament thing. That's where that stuff is coming from. Uh, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. How many witnesses did he have? He's claiming two, himself as one of them. Um, In your law is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasuries he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come, which implies there was something about what he was saying that they felt like was worth arresting, right? Of who he's claiming to be. He said, you do not know my father. They had an earthly father in mind. Jesus is obviously thinking of other things. He continues. So he said to them again, I like, how, I like how John makes a break to say they didn't arrest him, and then Jesus continues to kind of antagonize them a little bit. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. All right, so he continues kind of this conversation. Uh, Let's skip down a little bit and go to verse 48. Uh, The last thing he had said is, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. That's a pretty offensive thing to say to the religious leaders. The Jews answered him. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They've got a bucket full of things that they're offended by, and they've just chucked it all on Jesus. Like, of all the, I don't like what you're saying, you're the worst person I can think of, and probably demonic. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. 
Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. By the way, check the, the truly, truly's are funny. Because it's, to a certain extent, it's, um, it's like an amen, amen. Okay? And rabbinically, like the, the way the rabbis would use it would be, you would always say that about something that someone else has said as kind of a, yeah, high five, I agree. So when Jesus uses truly, truly, though, he's always referring to himself, right? And so he's like giving himself a high five, like, I'm going to say something, well, bam, and then he says it, and then he's already congratulating himself because he said something so sweet. I thought, I heard that this week, and I thought, well, that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, and now they're getting on it, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Watch the reaction. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Okay, so generally speaking, what's going on in the chapter? <laughs> Jesus is in a bit of an altercation, yes? Okay, he's having a discussion, uh, and it's primarily an identity thing. This is who I am. This is why I get to do what I do. Uh, the Jews are disagreeing with that particular thing. The context previously, like their reaction has been, we don't like this, we think you're a liar, and we'd like to arrest you. Okay? But something happens. There's, a, there's something at the very end, though, seems to amp, amp this up a little bit. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. They were going to kill him. They're going to stone him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Okay? Let's look at some context. Look at uh, Exodus 3.14. Ah, I am, blast, bed marker. Didn't that happen to me last week? Is that that same one? I think I had them put away and then I put them back. This will work. All right, I am, it's kind of a special deal. That's kind of a big deal, yeah? That's, that's the identity that God, it's how God describes himself to Moses when Moses says, who do I say sent me? And the, the Greek, this is why that, that um, blue letter Bible isn't completely helpful because it doesn't, it doesn't trace this stuff all the way through like I would like. But the phrase there in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is a goemi. I am. Jesus, in John 8, says, before Abraham was, a goemi. I am. He makes a series of I am statements, actually. In, in, especially in John, you see him tracing that. And it, it has a bigger connotation than I am this person, Right? It, it carries a load with it. It carries a God's story, God's narrative load with it. Okay? Now, why are they trying to stone him? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He said, yeah. It's, he's, he's got a, a blasphemy problem, right? And so that makes a lot more sense for him. For all the things that he said, it seems like he could have, they could have had a pretty negative reaction to that whole discourse, right? 
But when he says, before Abraham was, go away me, okay, he's claimed something that is in their view worthy of stoning. Okay? Without the, without the prior part of knowing where that comes from in God's narrative, then it just looks like they're overreacting. Like they've gotten extremely childish and then they've kind of pushed it all the way. Okay? So our background, understanding where that sits in God's story, what they're doing makes a lot of sense. And frankly, if he's wrong, he's, that's what he deserves. That's what the law calls for. Okay? They're reacting appropriately except for they misunderstand who he is. And they will continue to have that problem. Okay, let's look at something else. Uh, let's look at Revelation uh, 9. Somebody just, what, what do locusts, someone describe me, locusts. How do locusts behave? What do they do? What was it? Yeah, yeah, there's big, they come in giant, like hordes. They are very loud. Exactly. They exactly. They're not very uh, discerning when it comes to what they're they're willing to eat. They will destroy everything in their path. Yes. Very good. All right. Now let's look at Revelation nine, and here we go. Uh, I'm gonna. We're not gonna break all this down, but let's let's walk up to the point that we run into some locusts. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions over the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any green tree, which is interesting relative to they tend to eat organic things, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon, both mean destroyer. Okay, so those are some creepy looking creatures, yeah? Weird looking. And so I've seen people attempt to render this thing, to draw this guy out, and, uh, and what do they come up with? It looks like a what? Like a, um, like a, a helicopter. Like a helicopter, a, uh, some sort of war machine, okay? Like that has often been the description of like what this must be. It must be an attacking plane, something of that sort. Okay, because of the way this thing is described. Faces like human faces, hair like women's hair, teeth like lion's teeth, breastplates like breastplates of iron, noise of their wings. Okay, see where that's coming from? You're trying to describe if this is going to be current day, because obviously the Bible is always speaking to us, then what do we know that fits this description? And we usually come up with things like helicopters, planes, okay, stuff of that nature. I said context is important in God's story, yeah? So the question is, is... Does the Bible use locusts in any context of which might be able to help us understand what this particular thing is talking about? Let's look at a few things. Um, someone want to grab Judges 6, 1 through 6. Um, someone, Jeremiah 46, 23. Somebody raise your hand when I say, so that I know you're looking at it. Jeremiah 46, 23. Okay. Dave's got Jeremiah. You got Judges 6. Okay. And then um, can you take Joel 1, April? And are you ready with, what do you got, Jeremiah 46, 23? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. All right. Uh, 
You shall cut, cut down the forest, declares the Lord, though it is impenetrable, because they were more numerous than locusts, they were without number. What, um, shoot, actually should have had you read a little bit before that. What's the, what's the context of Jeremiah 46? It's at the start of Jeremiah 46, uh, uh, concerning the army of Pharaoh, Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at uh, Carchemish, in which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Okay? So actually, so this is, this is a invading army. Okay? It's the Bible's description of an army invading God's people. Okay? Susan? Uh, where, what did I, what were you at? Judges, just read one to six. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, Midianites, Melanites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza. And did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land, ravaged it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Sounds sound like the same basic use invading army, right? God's people being invaded. Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. Joel 1. One, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. Okay, that's good. Yeah? That even sniffs a little familiar, doesn't it? Fangs of a lion's teeth? What's context to Joel is a army has come upon my land. It's an invading army. All right. So when we could, yes, exactly. So when we get to a book like Revelation, without any context of God's story, I think I hear locust and I hear the description, and I'm like, I have no idea. That seems like a real nasty, funky beast of which I have no explanation for, and probably couldn't render in a drawing if I attempted. Okay, or Coming from how, biblically, it seems like locusts are used, I can take all that revelation is kind of tied up in that language and say, God's talking about judgment that comes on behalf of an invading army moving into God's people. And, that, and, I, and I can digest a creepy locust in a much more tangible way. That's exactly what Rome did. Yeah. And so, and, 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 and frankly, it seems like as part of our context of under, understanding Revelation, right? Like, God, that's, God does that. He does send uh, invading armies to his people, either as parts of uh, generally, generally judgment. Okay? So, um, and that, frankly, that right there, I wanted to give you that quick example since we're not doing Revelation in this class yet. But, like, from all the stuff that you read in Revelation, 
That's, that's how understanding where things come from God's story, that we can digest a book like Revelation. And I don't have to get caught up on breastplates of iron and fangs of a lion. Okay? It doesn't mean literal fangs of a lion, right? It's, he's, he's painting a picture. He's telling a story. And now I can digest that in a much different way because I know how locusts are used biblically. That make sense? Okay. So, um, in your Bibles, um, the, the digital Bibles are interesting on, on how they handle this. But like, uh, especially if you're using a print Bible, you come across words and they got the little... A little tick mark up at, the, up at the top. Okay, a little number reference somewhere. Other verses to look at. Do that. Do that. It's, it's trying to help you. Uh, it's trying to help you see how else does the Bible use this. It's not exhaustive. Okay, the, the Blue Letter Bible app, it does a pretty good job of that too. If you click on a verse, it'll, and if we're looking at words, you can go through and kind of see where those words are used. It's not great with phrases though. Your, um, your, the Bibles, like the stuff that you're buying off the shelf, do a better job of kind of tying phrases together and showing you other places where that might exist. Okay? But those are, it's an important concept as we're struggling to understand things. Where else might it exist? Don't assume because it's in the notes, though, that it's a legitimate connection. Okay? Just check it out. Just because the same words are used, doesn't, we're going to run into that. There's a, there's a uh, fallibility in how that's done um, in, in one of the interpretations of Matthew 10 where like, they've tied something together that I don't think has any business being tied together, and we'll, we'll kind of walk through the dangers of that. But like, use those notes. Use those notes. So, like, uh, they put those there for you to try to help you connect those things we otherwise wouldn't know. Otherwise, you'd have to go through, read the Old Testament, mark down every time you saw a word that you thought was important, and then keep it for a reference. Okay? In my Bible, they, um, it references the 9-3 locusts. It says the fact that these creatures come from the abyss and are unusual description in verses 7-11 indicate that they are demonic. Yeah, so this is where you need to make a distinction between references, like to other parts of the Bible, and like um, notes, like study notes, that the person that's interpreting the Bible gives you. I, um, I have this, this is my ESV study Bible. I really, really like it. There are, to my, to my understanding of Scripture, there's probably 5% of the notes that I, I, I don't agree with, right? Because it's another guy interpreting Scripture, Okay. Um, so yeah, you got to be careful with that. Ties to that point you to another verse. You read that. Those are those are generally good references. Um, anything else, just accept commentary is commentary. Could be right, could be not right. Um, I don't know that I would buy that 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 those are demonic. I don't know that I would agree with that. So I'll um, shoot. I don't have a screenshot of it, but I'll uh, I'll tell you this now. There's a um, there's a description. Have you guys heard of Cyrus Schofield? So the Schofield Reference Bible was like the first, if you want to call it, study Bible. Okay? He was the first guy to say, we should here's put text up here, and we should provide information about the text below to kind of help people study it. Um, that happened in the early 1900s. Schofield was a strong premillennialist, meaning that um, he expected a rapture of the church that would happen, and then seven years of tribulation, and then Jesus would return, and the world would end. Um, so his study notes reflected a lot of that theology. There were... Aspects, um, if you look at Matthew chapter 5, as a matter of fact, in the Schofield Reference Bible, one of the things that, that that belief system is tied up in is to say that the church, the modern church, was, a, was not intended. Jesus expected to come and have the Jews respond to him, and the kingdom was for them. And then the church, as we know it, only exists now because the Jews rejected Jesus. But Jesus would have expected that they wouldn't have done that, and that the church was, a, was basically plan B. Okay? And if you read um, his notes on chapter 5 of Matthew, he basically says that. It says the Sermon on the Mount, which we just finished going through, right? 
has is is nothing to do with the church. It doesn't describe how a person should act. It doesn't describe how a disciple of Jesus is. This was information about how the Jews were supposed to be in the kingdom. After they rejected Jesus, everything else is handled on how people are supposed to be in the in the epistles, basically. Okay, that's Schofield's perception of that. Now, I would, I would handily reject that. I feel like Matthew 5-7, to 7, as the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus laying out what it's like to live in the kingdom, and that is open for all people. The church is not a plan B. Okay? So, the, but those were, uh, the problem with the Schofield Reference Bible was, it was the first one of its kind, and so people had a very hard time separating what was God's word and then what was kind of man's interpretation of God's word. And here's the deal, you, just like from last week, Schofield is a smart man. I believe he loves Jesus. Okay? I think he's got that part wrong. And there's, there's commentary in my Bible that I love that I feel like is not correct. Uh, that same guy would look at anything I would have written down and be like, I feel like Ben is not right on that. Okay? So, I mean, do what you want with that stuff. Where we should be able to agree, though, is, is Scripture. So that's why I say those, those indicators that say, look at these verses, yeah, that's always safe. Whether, don't let it lead you. I can't say that that verse actually proves anything one way or the other, but like where that phrase is used somewhere else or how it's used throughout parts of the Bible, those are pretty safe references. Okay? Um, with your commentary, most of that stuff is good. Just be, just be careful. Be careful with your commentary. Oh, I think I can, I can see what Susan is saying, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, it 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 could it would imply a spiritual army and I'm not sure that that plays with the rest of the way that that part of Revelation speaks um, and the abyss doesn't necessarily mean that it's a physical place that they're coming from either um, and so like that's where you Revelation is interesting because you got to kind of put everything on the table if you um, it's, it's why it's a little actually a little hesitant to study Revelation in chunks because without without kind of digesting everything in the kind of the way that we digested the locusts then it means you have a tangible thing in the midst of what something that seems intangible, and it's easier to draw the wrong collusion, conclusion in that respect. Okay, um, So, I, I mean, it's not, um, it's not a, out of left field thing um, to believe that those are demonic. I just, from my understanding of Revelation, I'm not sure that that would be my conclusion. Well, it was interesting. The American army is the only one that liberates patients. All the other armies up until recently have, when they go through its rape, pillage, and destroy as they move through the uh, territory. Rome did that, the Greeks did that. Yeah, but conquering, sure. I, there would be people yeah. that would accuse America of the same thing, just in subtler ways. Yeah, well... Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, yeah, true. something to think about. Yeah. 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 Uh, generally not. I mean, and, and they're actually, I would tell you that, that if you look at the way that the four horsemen are set up in, in Revelation, like those are very likely war and the impacts of war as opposed to like individual events or individual like actual horses flying around somewhere. Like there are implications of what war has brought to humanity. And the thing that we have to deal with is like God calls them. God, God sends all those four horses. It, it's an interesting thing to digest, certainly. Uh, all right. So that's, that's it for context. Are we reasonably comfortable understanding like why, why our context is important? And it's complicated your Bible reading. I get that, but it's for the better. It's for the better. Okay? And make sure that we don't turn it into a desk calendar. We do better when we understand, digest things in context. Anytime you hear someone use a verse, we need to know what's going on around it. That same thing is true, actually, as you, um, when people want reference 
something, especially when the old, the New Testament writers are referencing parts of Scripture. Okay, you can't just digest the verse that that sat in. Okay, the, remember the example I gave last week when I said, um, uh, "Shoot, what was the end of the pledge?" Uh, with liberty and justice for all, right? I said there's a context baked into that. I'm not just referencing a phrase to say, "Oh, look, I use the same phrase." I'm referencing a whole context of which that phrase sits in, and I would expect you to be able to, if I'm going to use that phrase, that you brought that context with it. Okay, that makes sense? So, again, it stretches our Bible reading a little bit, because we can't just go, oh, that fulfilled something in Elijah. Well, that's great, but like, what was happening, what was happening around that? Like, what was happening with God's people? What was God communicating? Now, how do I understand that in reference to what the New Testament writers are trying to communicate? Okay? All right. Um, what time is it? Shoot. So I wanted to talk about, I want to go through examples of some last days. I'm going to skip that for now because uh, I, I want us to, I want to apply this a little bit because uh, I'm dangling a bunch of tools for you and we're not doing a ton of application. So we're going to try to apply this real quick. And if we get to last days today, we'll look at those. If not, um, we'll look at it some other time. Basically, if, if we look through the way that scripture uses the, the frame last days, we tend to think that puts us somewhere in the future in some 24-hour incremental periods just before the end of the world. The truth is that uh, the New Testament simply doesn't use it that way at all. It just doesn't. So we'll, we'll look at some examples of that if we can get around to it. Otherwise, I just give you kind of the short answer story is that when we hear last days, we can't assume time before the end of the world because um, Scripture doesn't do that. Let's look at Matthew 10. Actually, let's, let's do this with Matthew 10. Um, can you guys, within your table or close area, Okay, I want you guys to, to read through Matthew 10, stop at 23. Read Matthew 10 to 23 to yourselves, and I want you guys to discuss it around you. Um, and I want you to tell me what sticks out and where our big question comes when it comes to potential end of time stuff. Okay, I'll give you like five minutes. Take a read through it. Ah, it looks even more like a class, <laughs> you guys. <laughs> All right, so let's let's start by somebody. Can somebody help me with what? Like, what's going on? What's going on in this chapter? Yeah, he's sending the disciples out. Anything particular about sending them out? Ah. Authority. What was it? Specific areas? Which areas? Israel. Israel. Is that a geographic distinction or a people distinction? It's a little bit of both because he says city. But yeah, generally speaking, it's a people distinction. Okay, send them out. Authority. People of Israel. What else? What else is going on? Uh, he doesn't take a break. If you follow him through Matthew, he sends them out and he, he goes on doing more work. <laughs> yeah. well, he comes to the towns that they went to because if you keep reading, they're going to say something about It said their, their cities. Yeah. I, don't know, I don't know that that actually means that it's the cities that they had also gone to because it, it, um, when it describes that same thing in Luke, he, they come back. Like he's, he's doing other things and then they, they return. Like he doesn't follow them necessarily. They return back to him. Um, that is debatable though. I don't know, it probably doesn't matter one way there, but yeah. Yeah, so like I think, I think there, so this what I think is I think there probably refers to their cities like also cities of Israel because he'll have, a, he'll have the reaction to those cities that reject him 
in an interesting way. Um, that we, and we just went through that, right? Like, woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Chorazin, type of thing. Okay, what else? Well, the message is the kingdom of heaven is near. Ah. Yeah, he says to say the kingdom of heaven is near. Okay. Most will use at hand. I voted. Um, okay. Let's see. What else? Anything else going on that stand out? It, Thanks, Dan. You got that? <laughs> it says that um, it says that I'll send you a white sheep and a pack of and like an area of wolves and so it means like it will be dangerous, but it's God's work. Very good. Sheep among wolves. So he doesn't promise that this is going to go well necessarily, right? Like that you're going to run into trouble. He even predicts that it's going to be worse for them than it was for you. Ah, yes. Yeah. Now, there's an interesting parallel between those. He is giving them his authority, and with that comes his problems. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? He says, you're going to get it. I, you've seen it. I'm getting it. Where do, where's Jesus' troubles coming from, though? Who? Yeah, it's, it's always this. <laughs> it's always this. Yeah. Yeah. He's... He's, Jesus has been going to, to Israel now. It's not that he hasn't interacted with non-Israel. Even through Matthew here, he's already talked to a Roman centurion, positive. Okay? He's talked to a Gentile, positive. All right? His negative interactions are coming from here. Okay, good. Anything else stand out? Ah, Interestingly enough, in Matthew, you don't see this very often. He doesn't tend to reference the Holy Spirit, but he does hear. He does hear of the power of which they are sent under. Very good. Very good. All right, where's our, um, where's our end time stuff? Anybody know what our debated verse is? Ah, when they persecute you in one town, flee the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Yeah, that's a problem. Why? But reading it on its face, what does that sound like? Yeah, end times, right? You will not go through the cities of Israel. You will not complete that before the Son of Man comes, which we read as meaning before Jesus returns, second coming stuff, right? All right. Now we get to use our fun tools. Um, Let's look at Daniel chapter 7. All right, Daniel 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Uh, when you see four, okay, you'll see four corners of the earth, four winds of heaven, four. It's a, it's a number of completeness referring to... Uh, it's kind of like seven, yes. Number of completion like seven. Very good. Um, yeah, so four, it's a number of completion. It does not literally mean there are four corners of the earth. It does not literally mean there are only four winds of the earth. Okay, God is not mistaken in his science. It just means completion. Uh, isn't, that, isn't it a reference to creationism, to the creation, and not necessarily to God himself as seven is? No, yeah, yeah. Four, four is, is completion related to the earth. Okay. Almost always. Almost always, yep. Uh, I've heard that. I mean, the Bible doesn't really necessarily state that, but like, it seems reasonable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, actually, keep an eye on this. Keep watch out for fours in Revelation. 
Like when he was given a list, you'll see things stacked in fours, okay, representing Earth, whole Earth. All right. Uh, he's having. Oh, he's having a dream. Seems like a creepy one. Uh, he saw four creatures. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side, it had three rib in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking out great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Who's the Ancient of Days? God. God, why do we know that? There's a cheat answer. It's also capitalized. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Giveaway. Okay, ancient days. Ancient days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Uh, so let's parse this a little bit as we go. Fire can symbolize a couple things. What's one of them? Yeah. Power. Judgment. <coughs> Judgment. Okay. Yeah, or presence of God. What led the Israelites to the wilderness? Pillar of fire. Yep, yep, presence of God. When the Holy Spirit comes, it's explained as tongues of fire. Yeah, the literal fire in a room? Not likely, okay? Tongues of fire, presence of God. All right, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Does the judgment of God make sense in this context based upon all these beasts that we've just run into? Seem to be terrifying? Yeah, yeah. Uh... A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. We think that's a literal number? No. No. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. Myriads and myriads is generally what you'll say. Literal numbers, probably not. Uh, The court sat in judgment. There's our judgment. And the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. I like this this little horn off a beast that's talking to people. And as I looked, the beast was killed, thanks, Emma, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Who do we think that is? Yeah. Is that capitalizing what you're looking at? It's not in mine. I still think it's Jesus. <laughs> I think it's Jesus. Now, only time, only time anywhere in the Old Testament that we see the phrase Son of Man coming or associated with comes is here in Daniel 7. It is not the only place you see the phrase Son of Man. Son of Man pops up uh, in numerous places, it's all over in Ezekiel, and that is God actually saying, you, son of man, are distinct from me, who is God. Okay? It's generally not a positive connotation when God's using it then. However, here, here, son of man coming, what is he receiving? 
power, dominion, a kingdom over all peoples, nations, and languages, and people that serve him. Now, does that make sense in the context of what we're looking at in Matthew 10? Let's go back and look at it again. All right. I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Okay, that's our context. Do I think it's an appropriate context for this to drag us back to Daniel 7? Yeah. Yes, I think it is. I think that makes sense in the context. Because you notice he doesn't give any further description here. Who's he t- what type of people is he talking to? Who's, yeah, who's he talking to? The, the, the disciples, right? Do, do they recognize a phrase, the Son of Man comes? Do we think they would recognize that phrase? It's a yes. It's a firm yes. The, what we struggle with on our Old Testament, they don't struggle with. Okay? They know those things, especially this passage, and here's why. What's the picture that Daniel is painting? God's people are under duress. Yes, there are beasts coming out of the sea. Okay? God's people are under duress. And then what is, what is the, the vision as it unfolds shows what? Someone who basically vanquishes the beast or removes their dominion, okay? but, their, but their lives are prolonged, and becomes a, a ruler and brings a kingdom of which there's hope and glory, right? This, this language, this son of man language, is a very common thing when they're looking for redemption. Okay? They're looking for their concept of Messiah comes from here, or is rooted in here, I'll put it that way. Okay? Yes, this is something, this is something an average Jew would know. They took their scriptures very seriously. Okay? Well, to some that believed in it, right? Your Sadducees don't even believe in this part of the Bible, right? The Pharisees would have. The Essenes would have. Okay? All right, so now the question is, if, let's say that's the right connection, and I think, it's, I think it is. Now, what does it mean that the Son of Man comes? When? When is this kingdom happening? Well, let's, let's start by going back to Daniel 7. And we need to talk about this. Coming. Now, that is a directional term, yes? If I say, hey, Chuck's coming. Where's, where's Chuck coming from? Where's Chuck going to? Right? Because I said it. You feel like Chuck's coming to me. Hey, Chuck's coming over to my place because I'm sitting here. Okay? Let's, let's watch how Daniel 7 used it. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Come like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Where's the Ancient of Days at? Yeah. There's the Ancient of Days here. Son of man. Now that's not the direction we love. Right? That's not second coming direction. We think son of man comes. Talking to me, gotta be me, my perspective, gotta be coming from here, gotta be coming to here. That doesn't seem like the direction that Daniel 7 is presenting. Son of man seems to be coming from earth to ancient of days, which is in heaven. Okay? What in Jesus' life looks like that? This, this causes us a trouble, doesn't it? Like now, how do we understand this? You won't finish going to the city of Israel before the Son of Man comes. That seems to be, through the things we've talked about so far, potentially happening during Jesus' we'll call it the Christ event, okay? Jesus' time on earth. Birth, death, resurrection, ascension. Okay? So then I think now we have to answer the question, is when is the kingdom of God established? 
I feel like that'll help us parse that out a little bit, right? Because like if it's if he is supposed to get a kingdom, he was he was given was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom. If it is Jesus, and he's saying constantly that the gospel itself, the good news is about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, okay, then I feel like that probably orients ourselves in the right area, and maybe we can help answer this particular question. Let's look at um, how we understand then kingdom of God. We're looking at a lot. Did you ever follow me so far? Are we all pretty comfortable with where we're at? Now, here's where, I, here's where I'm feeling pretty confident, is this is most definitely not the end of the world. This is not the end of everything. Okay? Um, actually, while I'm, I'm, I'm looking this up, I want you guys to check. Anybody using their Blue Letter Bible app? Are you? Can you look up verse 22, Matthew 10, 22? And I want to know what word they use for end. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Can you tell us. Somebody look for me. Hold. Yes, he did. Um, ah, Jesus did. Okay, that, that'll work. Let's go to an example. Um, Jesus says this on the cross. It is finished. Same word, yeah? Okay. Now, when he says this is finished, is the world done? Is it the end of the world? Jesus also uses, they use the same word to describe the end of Jesus' trial with Pilate. It is a telos. It is the end. Matthew uses a different word for the end of everything. The word is suntaleia. Okay? He will use that word when referencing, when, when Jesus says, I will be with you even unto the end of the age. I will be with you even unto the suntaleia, end of the age. Okay? So, when Jesus in this, in, chap, in Matthew chapter 10, is saying, uh, whoever... What's my word? Uh, no, no, uh, yeah, but what's the, what's the context it's used? Yeah, yeah, the end, uh, one endures to the end. That's what I wanted. The one who endures to the end, it's not the end of everything. That would need to be a suntaleia, assuming that Matthew uses words consistently. Okay? So that, that is, there's two things that have pulled us out of into the world context and seems to reference, it, reference us at the end of a, uh, this is generally a process, right? End of the trial, what Jesus came to accomplish has been, finished or it is the end of yeah yeah or end of a end of a yes yeah broadly end of a process end of something that had that is not the end of everything it is the end of a process and and that is the word that he uses here okay so we have son of man coming seems to be going from heaven to earth and we have a telos that that says if you are faithful to the end which seems to be the end of a process perhaps even going to the cities of israel you will be safe right Okay, so let's look at the kingdom itself. Um, someone want to look at Matthew 3, verse 2? Somebody can just let me know you have it. Anybody? You got it? Okay, and then someone look up Matthew four seventeen. Got it. And then someone want to do... Actually, I'll take Matthew 12. Uh, okay, so... I will, we'll start by understanding the kingdom. And actually, it's, it's cool that we're going through Matthew at church because like, um, you want to trace kingdom. It's a fun book to do it in. Um, when Jesus is born, he gets a king's reception, right? Even as a baby, he is, he is treated like a king. And then let's look at the message that he brings. So, uh, Matthew 3, 2. And saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Ah, who's, who says that? Yeah, John. John the Baptist saying the kingdom of heaven is near. I like, I, I actually think at hand, uh, it depends on the, on the translation, near and at hand are, are two ways that you're going to see that. 
Um, Jesus will say something, almost the same thing in Matthew 4.17. Yeah, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he said, uh, if you look further on Matthew 4.23, it says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So, Jesus and John both seem to think that the kingdom of heaven is near or here. At hand, right? Let's look at Matthew twelve twenty eight, and I'll read this one for you. Um, Jesus is uh, he? He's being accused of something. It says, uh, you, that's, "I'll start reading because there's a little context to it." Then a demon possessed, uh, oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, "Can this be the son of David?" But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, "It is only by Beelzebul." The prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. They, you notice their tactics haven't changed. <laughs> Jesus does something uh, amazing, and then they just start calling him names. They've, they've moved on from Samaritan and demon to just being, you know, straight up Satan. Uh, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? That's a burn. Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So, is it by the Spirit of God that he casts out demons? Yes, yes. Then it seems the kingdom of God is very much at hand. Okay, so, now, if we look at the back of our context, now we're back at Matthew 10. See, we're doing a lot of work on Matthew 10. We're going to fight for this, for this one. So, you have not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This, here's what this seems to me. Is that when we think of Son of Man comes, we should put it in the context of Jesus' life. If he is our Daniel 7 guy, okay, his kingdom is not established at one time. It is establishing. Okay? There are iterations of which it is establishing. He's born, his kingdom is establishing. Okay? He is, uh, he is, he dies on the cross, establishing. Okay? News is spread. He is risen. He ascends. Kingdom is establishing. Because, frankly, the scriptures don't represent that there's one time kingdom established. As, when he describes it, if you look in Matthew, we won't read through these, but if you look in Matthew, um, what is it? The, when we get to the parables of, like, the mustard seed, oh, what's that, 13? So Matthew 13's got the parable of the mustard seed. It's got uh, the kingdom of heaven is like uh, the leaven and the bread, right? It is not something that happens right at one time. It continues to spread. It is a growing thing. If that's how we can understand the kingdom of God. Okay. I wouldn't have... Okay, yes. Okay, good. Like an infestation of strawberries. I'm with you. I like it. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So now... In the context, here's where I think we can put this in. You will not finish going through the city of Israel before the Son of Man comes, before the kingdom is establishing, which puts us squarely in the, basically, Christ event, life and times of Jesus. You will not complete going through all the cities of Israel, telling them about the kingdom before the kingdom has, is, is in the process of establishing. Now, here's where we read this wrong, though. We can look at this and say, like, it seems like a failure. You won't make it. Someone won't know. Right, But if it's not the end of the world, and the kingdom is establishing before this is completed, it means what about the mission? Yeah, there's more to do. Exactly. 
You are not, he's saying you're not finished. He's not saying you failed if it doesn't happen before I'm, before the kingdom is established. He's saying, no, no, you won't get done. My kingdom will come and the work still continues. So I actually think this speaks a little bit to the opposite of what we think it means. We seem to think it means that there's a stopping point. You won't complete it and something big will cause it to not continue as opposed to him saying, shake off the dust and move on. There's more work to be done. You won't even get through all of it before these events from Daniel 7 show up, before this, my kingdom is established on earth, and then you still have work to do because you are a part of that continuing to grow. His, his process of setting things to rights, of, of establishing his kingdom on the earth, continues in their work even after he has died, resurrected, and ascended. And even after those things are done, that work continues on our feet today. We are part of the process of God setting things right. This speaks to, speaks to the disciples at this time for him giving them context of what their labors look like even beyond after they've seen him die and resurrect and ascend into heaven. Now that makes a lot more sense based upon what he's telling them than sometimes where we stick this. Because it'd be weird to say, I'm sending you out. Here's your mission. I want you to go. Why why does he go into the city of Israel, by the way? Why is he saying, go to Israel? Yeah, start. Why? Yeah. Who who understands son of man? Your neighbors. (laughs) Jews, right? Israel. Correct. Well, Samaritans might. They're an iffy group. (laughs) Samaritans might. Um, but yeah, yeah, you start. Where does Jesus start? Synagogues. Where does Paul start? Synagogues. Because the things that he's talking about, he's got a foundation. That's where you start. That's where you gather people that understand who you're saying you are and who's going to follow you. And then you're in a good shape to spread that out to the world. Well, look at how detailed Paul had to get to explain the processes of the Jewish religion to the Gentiles so that way they could understand right, what so he's saying. Right. Doing exactly what we're doing. Exactly. Let me break it down for you. Right. Right. Exactly. And see, and so Paul has to go through that process with them because they don't know. That's why we have to fight for this process. In ways, remember I told you last week, at some point you're going to feel like we're stretching, right? Like we're looping all the way back to the Old Testament. We're like, son of man coming. That's our connection. And this is our big, yeah, it is. But we have to fight for that because we're not from there. We don't come, we're not steeped in that well. Whereas they would be looking for that because if you think about the situation that Israel is in, they are still under captivity as far as they're concerned, right? They've never been released. They are under a Roman government. And so what are they looking for? A Daniel 7 guy. They're looking for a king. They're looking for a Messiah that can liberate them. And now the truth is that the Jews wouldn't necessarily have put this as certainly not God's son in that context. Okay? They wouldn't necessarily look at this and say, oh yes, God is definitely going to send a son. That would have been a surprise to a Jew. They don't even necessarily think of this as a Messiah figure. Okay? Some did, but that wouldn't have been universal either. All right? But most of, this, most of the prophecy that happens in the Old Testament about Jesus, we totally get after it happened. But very few people predicted rightly before then. Would they have been able to see what God was actually doing in Christ until we look back at it, and then we can see it more clearly, and we're going through the process of doing that. Okay? Yes. Yeah, that, yeah. They're just looking 
for outnumbering kingdom to come in and, and run rampant over the whole lot of them. And yeah, the reestablishment of God's people, God's reign, and, and God's people elevated and the enemies crushed, that's what they would have expected. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They would not have invested so much in what our concept of as king, messiah, same thing. Yeah, they did, we're looking for king, right? But not necessarily king, messiah, same package. Right. Definitely. All right, so now the question is, if that, does this make sense within the context of Jesus is talking to them? Let's see if the things that he's warning them about actually make sense. Um, he sends them out, go to the lost sheep of Israel and proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Uh, we just talked about this. Is this not what Jesus gave to John, the Baptist, as an example to prove who he was? Yeah, same thing. You receive without paying, give without pay, acquire no gold or silver, no copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, um, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff. Uh, what, what's he saying here? Rely on who? Rely on me. Yeah, yeah. And this is, this is kind of the other thing is like, this, this repoints what it is that they're thinking and saying, this depends on me. All these things are focused on me, Jesus, as opposed to the other things that they're expecting. I want you to tie all your faith and your trust and this bringing the kingdom back to me. Uh, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. The house is worthy. Let your peace come on it. If it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive or listen to your words, shake off the dust. Um, truly I say it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. We just talked about this in Matthew 11. Uh, Woe to the unrepentant cities. It's the same thing. Jesus, so he sends out his disciples to have this conversation and they're having the same reaction. Uh, it would have been better for Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the exact thing that Jesus says to the unrepentant cities who are seeing what he's doing and rejecting him. Jewish cities. Jewish cities. Okay? Can't, it's unlikely to be um, mistaken, right? That like he's, they've both said the exact same thing in reaction to cities of Israel who are hearing the message and are otherwise rejecting it. He's getting the same reaction from the disciples, same reaction from Jesus. It's a pretty cool to think, though. Again, like if we tossed, is Jesus has given them his power, or his authority. He's given them, they bring with it his trouble, and they also bring with it their reaction. Okay? And those things pass on to us. Again, we're still part of the process of making wrongs right. All right. Behold, okay, let's, he, he continues. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent and doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Does this happen? How? Do, who? Do we, any, any examples? Yeah. John and Peter. That very thing. By who? It's the Jews, right? It's the, the, like it's the Jews that are doing this. Follow that through the Book of Acts. Who else does it happen to? Paul. Paul. Now, Paul. You know, see, here's the deal: is like Paul is not necessarily personally picking a fight. He's just taking Jesus's fight and passing it around, right? And he's what's interesting about Paul is most of the time that he gets in trouble, it's because it were Jews following him and getting him into trouble. Okay, this is an appropriate warning of the disciples and the followers of God going to the cities of Israel and watching Israel's reaction. It tends to be them that are acting out in such a way. Even Jesus' crucifixion, Rome crucified Jesus. That's true, right? But it was the Jews that brought him there, right? Same reasons, same reasons. They don't like what he's saying, and that's the reaction, all right? So is this, does this happen to Jesus' followers? Does his warning come true in the time period as opposed to end of the world? Sure. Sure, it rests within the time period. Yeah. 
No, that's true. That's true. Actually, that's a pretty, if you look at foxes, I shouldn't have wrote this behind me because you're not going to be able to see it very well. well the, the Fox's Book of Martyrs is a very interesting book. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah, he he was he was a so there were two things. There's um, they were he was a threat to their leadership and and their power basically. Correct. And and they were shaming in front of everybody else they did bring shame upon themselves quite a bit by trying to shame Jesus. That's true. That's, and they obviously were very upset about that. As a matter of fact, the, the, the time where it turns and he says, we need, uh, uh, we need to plot to kill him is when Jesus, they've attempted to shame him. He answered correctly, which he always does. And the, the crowd is the, is the decider on who gets the honor of the shame, and they lost every time. And so, yes, it created a very de- deficit for them um, in trying to reconcile that. And it was... Um, now, reasonably... Here's a, let's see if I can put the, the Pharisees in a bit of a reasonable category. If, again, if the things that Jesus is saying are not true, their reactions are correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a man that is trying to pollute the people of God, and their whole, their whole deal, which they have correct, is they got taken into exile to begin with, right? The, the Babylonian exile, the Assyrian exile, was because God's people were, were frankly not following God. They had rejected him, they had stopped doing what he told them to do, and their lack of righteousness is what got them exiled. As far as they're concerned, they're still in exile, and so they start trying to protect the righteousness of God's people. And so they say, if this man is trying to lead them astray, or he's not washing his hands, or he's jacking with the Sabbath, yeah, we have a problem with that. Um, The only person that could actually change God's laws are God, so if I don't believe he's God and he's blaspheming, yeah, their reactions are appropriate. The problem is, is that they're blind. The problem is that they are blind. Right? Because the way Jesus is talking about these things is that you have the ability to know the difference. Right? The scripture exists for you to be able to tie those things, see that they are fulfilled in me, and my, the things that I'm doing, the healings, like all these miracles that are going around you, vouch for who I am. And their reaction is to dig deeper and say, he's obviously Satan. Okay? That's, that's a Pharisee problem. Are they trying, in the, on a base level, are they trying to protect the right things? Yes. That's where we get legalism today. We're trying to protect the right things but God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Like he's, there's, there's a root in understanding of why things exist and what those relationships mean between us and God, and we protect the wrong things. We want to protect the facade. We pass laws to protect the facade, to get people to act the way that we want them to act because we think Jesus wants them to act that way. And the truth is, he does, right? But not because it's a puppet show. He changes hearts, which changes how, what people do and how they act and how they think. And so... The question isn't whether, yeah, do we want to see people do things? Do we want to have laws in the books that protect people from harming themselves and going down their own path? Sure. But if all our energy is trying to do those things and not trying to help change hearts and minds and have people meet Jesus and then let the Holy Spirit do the Holy Spirit's work, yeah, that's where we run into problems. And it's it's a pharisaical problem. Focusing on the right thing for the wrong reason with the wrong heart. And that's where they're at. Okay. Uh, Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father is child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Is that happening? Yeah. All right. That's our quick digestion of Matthew 10. Let me give you um, some competing theories, okay? Some things that, don't, that would not necessarily agree uh, with what we just talked about. Here's view number one. When it talks about Matthew 10, 
And Jesus says, truly I say to you, will be, uh, whoops, sorry, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The first view is largely propagated by a man named Albert Schweitzer. Um, he was a very popular guy when it came to the quest for, uh, the of, of the historical Jesus. Sorry, there's a weird, something about that conjunction, you've got to get specific, otherwise it's not right. Um, so he's, he said Jesus was wrong, basically. He thought that the end of the world, the full kingdom, would come about before they finished going through the series. Of, so when we think end times, second coming of Christ, that type, the stuff that we, the baggage that we have on that, he says that's what Jesus thought would happen, and he was just wrong. He was just incorrect. Um, can't dismiss uh, Schweitzer. He is a he's a very smart man. Um, he just I don't think there's any foundation to this. Um, there's no evidence of that at all that Jesus thought that. Um, I think it misunderstands the nature of the coming of the Son of Man. Like it completely negates the fact that he could be referring back to a Daniel 7 thing. Because here's, here's the truth. is like when we look at how Jesus uses Son of Man, he simply provides no context. So if we were in the same boat as they were, and it doesn't mean have anything to do with Daniel 7, then what is he talking about? Because he seems to say it a lot. It's his favorite phrase. In fact, he, he, no one else calls him that. He calls himself that. He refers to himself as the Son of Man, uses it nearly 80 times. So if it's not a Daniel 7 context and he never explains it, that's a little bit of a, I don't know, a jerk thing to do. But if it is Daniel 7, we have a proper way to digest it. Does that make sense? Okay, so to keep it, pull it from the Daniel 7, that's why I'm, that's why with the connection of those words and the lack of Jesus is providing context, I'm firm that that's where that's coming from. It's got to be there. Okay, so I think to, to believe that Jesus was flat out wrong, it has to misunderstand the nature of the coming of the Son of Man. I think he has to disregard the Daniel 7 connection completely. Uh, and thirdly, who wrote the book of Matthew? Easy. Matthew. Matthew. Very good. Um, Matthew is a follower of Jesus, yeah? Okay. He's trying to get other people to follow Jesus? Okay. Historically, does it make sense that he would include an example of when Jesus had a failed prophecy? I mean, I don't want to, I'm introducing enough doubt in you not trusting your Bible translations, but let's mistrust our Bible writer for a minute, right? If you were trying to get someone to believe that Jesus was God, and that's what you believed and trusted, is it likely that you're going to include a failed prophecy in your description of him? No. no. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt, right? He's, he's not, probably not a fool, all right? Which means either Matthew is a fool because he included a failed prophecy of Jesus that didn't come true, or it's not a failed prophecy, right? Right, okay. So I'm pretty comfortable dismissing option number one as not being accurate, okay? That Jesus was, was just wrong. I, just, I don't think there's a lot to substantiate that. Um, view number two. Yeah, yeah, it does. It makes both Matthew and Jesus look. Oh, but it just makes himself just look like an idiot. Like, why are you following a guy that is not who he says? You know what I mean? Yes, exactly, exactly. Some people think that anyways. They think this guy can't. This guy can't be Jesus. So, like, some people just think that they're wrong anyway. No, that's true. That's true. There are people that are going to believe that regardless. But Matthew's not likely to bring it to the forefront and say, hey, everybody, Jesus was wrong and I still believe he's God. He's probably not going to do that, right? Okay. All right. So uh, let's, let's, I think we're okay dismissing that one. Let's look at view number two. Um, they, they see that the coming event of Matthew 10:23 is the Roman invasion of Palestine in AD 66 to 70. Okay. Basically the destruction of the temple. All right. Here's... Um, there's actually, a, there's a lot of heavyweights behind this one. Uh, respected, uh, there's a guy named D.A. Carson wrote a very good commentary on John um, at, who, who would otherwise come from this view. So like when I say that I don't believe them, again, that doesn't mean you dismiss them out of hat, right? But uh, here's, here's, some, 
here's their description of it. Um, says that the word come stands for divine punishment. Ah, so let's talk about this because I, I drug you around on, a, on an excursus tracing language throughout the Bible, yeah? This guy's going to do the same thing. This belief structure comes from the same thing. Let's take a look at it. So he says, uh, the word come stands for divine punishment. Um, someone want to pull that up in, in the Blue Letter Bible on Matthew 23 and look at all the different uses for it? Yeah, oh, sorry, 10.23. And then I'll give you, he says, Revelation 2.5 is a good example of this. Um, uh, Jesus is writing a letter to the church at Ephesus, and he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Okay, so the word come there used as a form of divine judgment. Do this or I will come there and I'll remove your lampstand. Uh, second example that they thought was strong was Isaiah 12, 2 through 5. And I'll read that one for you. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Okay, would you agree that those two instances of the word come are used as a, seemingly as a, thing, a divine judgment? Yeah, okay, I could buy that. I could buy that. Uh, however, the word come is also used in myriads of other ways that don't represent that at all. So the, the reason I wanted to give you this particular example is I, I'm, I want to be clear of what we're introducing and the dangers that come with it. Okay, I recognize that pulling, like when I say Son of Man coming only happens once in Daniel 7, and I can parse that through reading through Matthew 10, and I can say, okay, okay, I think that that makes sense to me, that they would understand that. Can I take the word come, a word, and string it anywhere else in the Bible and use it to otherwise justify what is it I'm doing? No, I think that's dangerous. If the word Son of Man coming was in Ezekiel, where, where God was using it as, I am God, you are Son of Man, to make a distinction, and he had used Son of Man and coming in any context, would that put my Daniel 7 understanding in, some, in, in problematic territory? Sure. Yes, it would. I think it would. But it's not. I feel like that one's pretty clear to me. Okay? Can you just take, grab the word come, though, and say, when, when the Bible uses come, it uses it as divine judgment? That seems a little bit more precarious. Okay. Again, there's smart people that believe that. That is tenuous to me. That seems very difficult. So be careful. Just because words connect doesn't mean they're supposed to connect. Phrases, yes. Phrases, probably, as a matter of fact. Okay. But um, but be careful when we're stringing single words around. Okay. Does that make sense? When we're going to go in the defense. We just got to do it safely. Um, they said uh, the other, other in support of this view that uh, the Son of Man coming is, is Roman invasion of Palestine. That flee has a sense of urgency. It says you got to flee the city. Okay, um, when it when uh, it, this is in, it covers in Matthew twenty three, Luke twenty one, or Matthew twenty four, Luke twenty one, Mark thirteen, talking about um, fleeing um, before the coming destruction. Okay, um, they said that that's that's the sense of urgency that this would be playing off of. Um, and I say it makes sense in relation to the destruction in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 in, in AD 70. Uh, my reaction to this is that seems like a stretch to me. Um, one, because Matthew already talks about those events in Matthew 24. Um, and it has nothing to do with going to the cities of Israel. Um, it's, it seems it's not tied to people going out. It's simply tied to the destruction of the temple. Okay? Um, or, or how I would read destruction of the temple. Um, although we can key off phrases in context, one word seems to be a little bit perilous. Uh, it's especially broad word. That is not used that way a majority of the time. Okay, um, it does again completely ignore Daniel's use of Son of Man. 
I know I feel like I'm railing on that, right? But like, I don't know how to understand that any other way if I can't understand it the way it's used in Daniel. So either I have to feel like Jesus is being fishy or that's the right way to understand it. And to completely ignore that here, I think makes sense because does Jesus return in AD 60, 70? Like, is there any semblance of his kingdom or anything going on at the destruction of the temple? Now, I'm going to wink on that one a little bit because I actually think there is something about that because if you are replacing a system that points back to you and the one thing that remains is the temple, does the destruction mean something? I think it does. But can, I, can we sack our whole circumstances on that? I would be, I would be hesitant for that. Um, and also Luke 21 seems more appropriate to parallel with Matthew 24 and Mark 13, not uh, Matthew 10. So I would say I'd, this seems more plausible to me than the other option, um, but I would still reject it based on my understanding of Daniel 7. Okay. Um, view 3, and this is an interesting one because I think I, I believe this. Um, someone t- I think someone told me this because I asked a similar question when I was like 10 or something. Um, was that when, when he said to uh, go to the cities of Israel, it was meant to be like a microcosm to mean all nations. See, what he really meant was that you won't finish going through all nations until uh, before Jesus' second coming happens. Okay? And so I can understand uh, cities of Israel to mean basically all nations. Why would I struggle with that? Yeah. Israel was yeah. What's our what's our context? Hi, hi, fellas. I'm going to send you out to, you know, disciple and then talk to people about about me and careful they're going to persecute you. And then, by the way, you're not going to make it all the way through those before I come thousands of years from now. And so, I just wanted you to know that. So, what benefit is that for them? The disciples also wouldn't have thought of Israel as being including all the Gentiles and all the different right. branches. Uh, correct. And all the spiritual descendants. That's, yeah, that's, that's, they would have understood Israel as all their kin. Correct. Yes. They would not have, we, we don't, we know, we define Israel differently because of what we know of Jesus and Galatians and, right, like, not all Israel is Israel, right? So we look at Israel differently. Uh, agreed. That is not a concept of which they would have understood. When we read this at the table, I said that to Travis. It was just like, Israel, well, that's like all of us. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right, right. Right. So. Correct. We're, we're still in the process. So, that, so it, would, it would take a giant leap of context for me to be able to believe that. I like it. Because then I can say, Son of Man means second coming of Jesus. And then I can say, well, certainly he has to get around to, to try to get to everybody. He can't just go to the city of Israel because like, then what, what is Paul doing? It doesn't make any sense to watch how they've reacted to things if that's where they're supposed to focus forever. I don't understand the changes uh, that, that they went about. So... I don't think that's tenable within the concept, within the context of how that verse is used. I just, it, it just can't with who he's talking to. And remember, when we're going to read something, it, we are not the primary audience. We are an audience, but we're not the primary audience, right? So I, ha- I have to understand how they heard it, and then through that I can understand how I should otherwise hear it. Um, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to me uh, for Jesus to be going, things that matter to you now, things that matter to you now, things that matter to you now, things that don't have anything to do with you at all and will not be relevant to you or your kids or your kids' kids or your kids' kids or your kids' kids. By the way, things that now matter to you now, matter to you now, matter to you now. That's what I'd have to believe to say that that applies to everybody. There are some um, otherwise well-done, conservative, like biblically conservative commentaries that would otherwise stress that point, that would say that that has to be a microcosm. I just I don't think that's tenable. Um, based upon the context of the verse. I think we have to rip that out a little bit. And again, it rejects an understanding of the Daniel 7 Son of Man. And so um, 
I don't, that can't be my only reason for objecting everything, but it will be part of most of my reasons for understanding that verse correctly. Was this helpful? Sorry, I know this was a lot, but I, I wanted to try to use some of our, some of our tools a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're self-centered and we want to know how it applies to us right now. Yeah. I hesitate with you saying that you don't think Israel means all of us. I understand what you're talking about in the concept. No, I mean, it, yeah, not in this portion, but it certainly does out, outside of that, definitely. Outside of that. Oh, sure. That's how it applies now. Sure. Because that's exactly what we're talking about. We're not done yet. We need to be about the business. Mm-hmm and go out and get it done, and this is how it's going to look, and this is how it's going to go. Sure. Okay. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's just... I'm out of now. That's fair enough. You were supposed to load up on this week. I did. Um, yeah, so it's... We, so we have to understand... I think the, the right point is to understand how they would have heard Israel. And then, like, that is influenced otherwise by how we continue to read Scripture. But I can't read into this as, this means all Israel. As a matter of fact, another good example would be, um, we can't read into... It's in that same... Uh, same area. Hold on. Uh, to Matthew ten thirty eight. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Okay? That cannot mean salvation. It, the cross has no salvation context yet. Yeah, so it's that same comparison. It's like, what, the, what, what, is a, um, what does taking up your cross and following Jesus mean right there for those guys? It's a failed revolution. Because we said Rome hang like crucifies failed revolutionaries. So when he says, take up your cross and follow me, he's saying, die for what I think. <laughs> die for what I'm, what I'm bringing. And it does not have a salvation context. Now, we know that the cross does have a salvation context. But it's interesting because we, it's, he uses this as an ethic. This is how we live. This is, the cross means something more than that you are saved. And here it means, this is how our kingdom works. This is the message that we carry. That's you taking up your cross and following me. What we tend to do is know what the cross did and say it is simply a salvation method, message and not an ethic. And that's where we screw the cross up. is because we cut out half of what it does. It does not only teach us that we are saved, but it teaches how to live. We live like Jesus lived. We die like Jesus died for the things that Jesus dies for. And so the cross remains also an ethic. And so, yeah, we can't read salvation into this here, but we know that the cross is also that later on in the story, and Israel would be the same example. Make sense? Yes. That makes everybody good on there? I got it. Okay. Any other questions? This is going to get worse before it gets better, by the way. Matthew 23 is just awful and awesome to parce out. So we could decide um, that same verse about... Um, I don't know that there's context to, to say that. Um, I, I'm not, I won't say no to that, but I don't know that there's context to, to say that necessarily. Because like the, the, uh, when the Holy Spirit comes, Acts, right? Early part of Acts. Yeah. They, are still talk, they are still talking city of Israel. Um, the description seems to be, seems to be on them, and then it it carries through baptism. Yeah, I I don't know if that's strong, but I I, don't, I couldn't dismiss it directly. I'll put it that way. I'd have to I'd have to sniff that out some more. Yeah. Uh, it seems like in verse twenty that the spirit of God is already going to be with them as they go. So he won't be 
following up behind them on their heels. It'll be more like while you're there. Yeah, well, that's what I say. That's kind of what confused me too, because it talks about he's given them the authority and stuff, but then again, it don't actually say they received the spirit until Pentecost. So which I don't know when that is on a timetable. I guess. No, and so I, I would say, like, our understanding of Jesus gone, Holy Spirit here um, should be centered around Pentecost. The giving of the Spirit, otherwise, between creation t- through that point, seems to be at God's discretion. Because um, you, uh, you, 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 you. Through the authority. Yeah. Because it. His authority, he's giving. Right, that's how they're accomplishing the things like the healings and, the, and, and that type of stuff. Like, it's, th- it's through the Spirit. Um, not, we don't have to think of it necessarily as the concept of an indwelling Holy Spirit that we would Pentecost forward, but the presence of a Spirit that otherwise is helping them do the things that they're doing, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe that, that's the right, probably the right way to understand that. That's a good question. Anything else on Matthew 10? Shoot, am I over time? Yeah. I started at 630, didn't I? Shoot, I'm way over time. Who's the buzzer? Someone's supposed to be a buzzer on me. I warned you guys against this. <laughs> supposed to be. Supposed to be a buzzer. Okay. Okay. Uh, All right. So, very good. Let me tell you where we're heading. Let me tell you where we're heading. So, next week, we're going to talk about Matthew 13. Uh, We're going to try to digest that one quickly. We're not going to do... That one is simply a matter of reading the text closely. And so, hopefully, we can knock that out in a normal five minutes, a bin 15. Um, We'll do that. Uh, It's a bin 15. Take... It's a triple. It's a triplicate. You take what's how long it's supposed to happen, and then you triple it. Yeah. You can't just tack ten on. You just triple. Um, so we'll do that, and then we're going to start to talk about Matthew twenty-three. Here would be my recommendation on Matthew twenty-three. Um, I want you to. I want you to read it. Sorry, I keep saying Matthew twenty-three. Twenty-four. Matthew twenty-four. Uh, twenty-three is helpful, but I'm primarily concerned about Matthew twenty-four. So I want you to read Matthew twenty-four and understanding. The things that we've kind of pulled out of the ether of Jesus' second coming. Let's try to re-digest Matthew 24 and circle things or take some notes of things where you're like, this still definitely seems like end of times to me. This, is, this has got to be, here's something I might be able to put in a current century uh, from a disciple's perspective. Here's something that I, I, I don't know how to understand anything but into the world. Okay, I will post some... Um, probably a couple different pieces of things on the Facebook page that you can try to read. You don't have to. I'll explain them to you. But like um, that, that uh, did everybody see I posted the, uh, the Wars of the Jews? Jewish Wars, sorry. Josephus' Jewish Wars. Um, if you can get to that, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll do some of that stuff uh, that are, relate to Matthew 24. Um, what else on Matthew 24? Let me think. Oh, oh. Um, if you do nothing else, in Matt, well, I want you to read it first. Read Matthew 24. If you do nothing else besides that, I want you to look at the beginning of Matthew 24. I'll read, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what I want you to look at. Basically, I want you to look at the question the disciples ask and the question that Jesus answers. Specifically centered around the word... In 24? Yes. Where it says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Um, I want you to look at the, the close. I want you to look at the word close and look how Jesus uses the word end. Okay? Look for close and end in, in, in Matthew 24. 
And that, that will get to the answer of what is the question that the disciples are asking and what is the question that Jesus is answering. Um, 24 verse 3 is the question that the disciples are asking. And then I want you to look, when Jesus uses the word end, watch the question that Jesus is answering, and it will be a distinction between this word, which I said was the end of a, yeah, event or process, yep, or suntalea, which is the end of all things, okay? So see if you can check that out. Give that a shot. Get lost, get agitated before it, and then we'll, we'll counsel it uh, next week. All right, you guys are confused and free to go. I'll see you next week.